Amen. Good morning, church. How are we this morning? Doing well? Hey, y'all, my name is Liam Hardy, and I want to say thank you for this opportunity to come and bring uh, God's Word this morning. I want you to know that this is not a task I've taken lightly. And y'all, I just want to hear from the Lord this morning as we open our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. Would you turn there with me this morning, Acts 8? We're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of Acts 8. That sounds like very intimidating as we get started this morning. And y'all, I want to preach a message this morning called Never too far. The name of the message this morning is Never Too Far. And we are moving forward from one of the darkest moments in the entire book of Acts. We're moving forward from the stoning of Stephen. And when tragedy strikes, when bad things happen, we start to ask, how can a good God redeem this situation? When tragedy strikes, we start to ask questions like, how could a good God allow this to happen? Or how could he make this situation better? And this morning, I want to show you moving forward from the stoning of Stephen that no situation and no person is too broken to be redeemed by God. No situation and no person is too broken to be redeemed by God. You see, God looks at people differently than people look at people. God looks at people differently. God doesn't look at someone and say, I can't redeem that person. But we do all the time. We look at people and examine them from their outside, whether their appearance or what they do, and we think, oh, that person's a good candidate for church. Or, hey, that person has got a long way to go. In our sinful mindset, we look at the outward appearance while the Lord looks at the heart. Teachers, and those of you who have worked with kids, don't we judge kids? in our class. And we normally have three categories, at least this is the way it works for me whenever I've worked with kids. We have three categories. The one, we just love type one, right? We love category one. Those are the kids we would take home and they would be our kids. We would love that. Love these kids to death. Then there's a second category and it's the kids that we're indifferent to. And you're kind of counting the kids in your class that day and you're always forgetting that kid because they just fly under the radar. Anybody have any kids like that? Okay, maybe y'all are better teachers than I am. Thank you for, for your honesty. Then there's the third type of kid. There's that kid that makes you want to renounce your faith, pull out your hair, move to Hawaii and eat chocolate for the rest of your life. That kind of kid. Can I tell you all a story quickly about that type of kid in my life? In 2019, I went to Jeunesse Park, California, and I worked Fuge Camps, which is a Christian camp. And we'd have kids from all over come and be in our Bible study. And I had a kid in my Bible study named Johnny Valentine. I'm not making that name up. The kid's name was Johnny Valentine. So if you ever run into a Johnny Valentine from California, I know him. In my Bible study, he was not the type of kid that I thought was going to pull out my hair. In fact, I thought he was going to be the second type of kid. I thought he was going to be the type of kid that I would not remember after that week. Very quiet, just sat there, didn't say a word. During Bible study, he was fine. My job during hang time, it's kind of afternoon period after they'd played some games, was to run the camp store where we sold t-shirts and blankets and, you know, chapstick and stickers, that sort of thing. And so I'm in the store before the kids come down and a group leader, an adult from the church comes up to me and says, hey, Liam, I need to tell you about one of my kids. Okay. He said, hey, you need to watch this kid when he comes in the store because he's a kleptomaniac. And he is going to steal from you. I'm just letting you know, this kid is going to steal from you. And his name is Johnny Valentine. I said, do you know Johnny Valentine? I said, yeah, I do. I said, this is probably really good because he's in my Bible study, so I'll know him when he comes. So the kids get let out. And guess who was one of the first customers in my store? Johnny Valentine. 
Now, I use my connection with Johnny, him being in my Bible study, as an excuse for me to follow him around the store. And I was trying to make small talk, like, hey, Johnny, you having a good week at camp? Hey, guys, this is Johnny. You know, I'm like watching him as he's going around the store. Hey, Johnny, your adult was here today, and he was saying all good things about you. You know, I'm just watching every move he makes to see if he would steal something. Guy leaves the store, and I thought, he didn't steal a single item. That was Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the adult comes back and I see him walking across our rec field toward the store with a large pillowcase. Without a word, he comes up to our counter and he empties the pillowcase and camp store merchandise just falls out on the counter. He said, this was under Johnny's bed. My pride, y'all went from here to here. I was security. I was supposed to watch this kid. This kid did not steal from me. He had probably $400 worth of camp merchandise that he had stolen. And he said, I don't know if he got this from the store. I don't know if he got it from other kids. Here, I don't know what to do with it. Here it is. I don't know how he did it. I really, to this day, have no idea how he stole from us. Last day of camp, we're all kind of hanging out. Everybody's packing up, loading into the buses. That same adult comes up to me and says, hey, Liam, can I talk to you again? Sure, what's up? He said... Last night after our church group devotion, Johnny was walking back to the cabin and he started asking questions about God. He said, I've never heard him even be interested in the things of God. Normally he just comes to youth group, he steals, and then he goes home. But he was asking me questions. He was telling me some things you said in your Bible study. And I think God's working on Johnny Valentine. I said, that's fantastic to hear. And, and I started walking away. I said, y'all have a great week. You know, I was walking back to my cabin. All the kids were gone for the weekend. You know what went through my cynical, sinful brain? Yeah, right. Because my pride was hurt. This guy had stolen from me. I don't know how he did it. It was a kid. But in my sinfulness, I thought, God's not working on him. He's got issues. And y'all, this morning in Acts 8, moving forward from the stoning of Stephen, we're going to look at three men, Saul, Philip and Simon. And I'm going to show you this morning that no one is too far from God. We look at the outward appearance of people. We look at people's actions and think that person cannot be saved by God. That person's too far. But y'all, part of living sent is to have the eyes of God, to believe in the power of the gospel to the extent that we say this gospel is the power of salvation. And I'm going to share it with everyone and no one is too far from God. How dare we as the church exclude somebody from the gospel based on something they've done to us. Three men this morning. And here's what's crazy about God using all three of these men. Only one of them was clearly obedient. And yet God used all three of them for his purposes. First, we see in Acts chapter eight that God used Saul's disobedience. God used Saul's disobedience. Will you read with me Acts 8, one through four? Acts 8, one through four. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's the stoning of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. First thing we see here is that God uses Saul's disobedience. So think about Saul. We know Acts 9 is coming for Saul. What happens in Acts 9? Saul is going to experience Christ. He's going to be converted, and he's going to become Paul, and he's going to go on missionary journeys, and he's going to write a large part of the New Testament, and we know that's coming for Saul. But just imagine with me this morning if Acts 8 was the last chapter of the Bible that we had. Would you believe that Saul was in the kingdom of God? We wouldn't, would we? 
No. We would have that attitude that I had toward Johnny Valentine of, yeah, right, you're telling me that Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament? You're telling me that this guy went on missionary journeys? Absolutely not. But we know God's going to actually turn Saul's life around, but not in Acts 8. In Acts 8, Saul is persecuting the church. He's emboldened by the stoning of Stephen. We're told he was in hearty agreement with that death. And so he continues to ravage the church. But Saul's efforts to end gospel proclamation actually served to move gospel proclamation to phase two. And this is how God redeems Saul's disobedience. Let me say that again. Saul's efforts to extinguish the gospel actually moved the gospel to phase two. And you may say, well, what's phase two of the gospel? I didn't know that there were phases of the gospel. Acts 1.8, Jesus actually gives us his plan for how the gospel was going to go forth. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so far in our study of Acts, the apostles had only been taking the gospel to people in Jerusalem. We talked about at Pentecost, some people came in from other parts to hear the gospel, but the gospel has so far only been in Jerusalem. But check out what God does through the persecution in verse one. It says, um, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul's efforts to extinguish the gospel in Jerusalem actually unsettles the church. So the church is spread and starts preaching the gospel in Judea and Samaria. The plan of God for the gospel was to go to the entire world. But in between Jerusalem and the entire world, the next step was Judea and Samaria. In Acts 8.1, we see Luke telling us phase two has begun. Even through great persecution, God was able to use Saul's disobedience. Now, does that mean that God was pleased with Saul stoning Stephen? Absolutely not. But it's like what Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, to his brothers when he helped them with the famine. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring about this present result. God was even able to use the disobedience of Saul. Second thing I want us to see this morning is that God uses Philip's obedience. That's man number one. Next, we look at Philip. We're told in verse four, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And when you read with me verses five through eight of chapter eight, it said, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. One of the men who is scattered because of the persecution is a guy named Philip. Now, who was Philip? We know there was a disciple named Philip, but was this the disciple? No, this is actually somebody else named Philip. Um, the church tradition often distinguishes these two men as Philip the apostle and Philip the evangelist. And you say, well, how do we know that this isn't the disciple? Well, verse one actually tells us, it says that believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the 12 apostles actually stayed in Jerusalem in the midst of the persecution and other believers were scattered and one of them was Philip. So where are we introduced to Philip in scripture? And the answer to that is we're introduced to him the same place we're introduced to Stephen. In Acts 6, 5, it says, the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Stephen and Philip served together as deacons in the distribution of food. But we see Stephen actually has to leave the city, or excuse me, Philip has to leave the city of Jerusalem because of the persecution. And as he goes, he preaches the gospel. 
and revival breaks out into the city of Samaria as a result. What's interesting, we actually see two very contrasting pictures in Acts 8. Let me show you this. It says in verse 2 that the devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Because of what Saul was doing in Jerusalem, there was weeping. But because of what God was doing through Philip in verse 8, there was much rejoicing in the city of Samaria. We can see God using Saul's disobedience and using Philip's obedience hand in hand to advance the gospel and bring salvation and rejoicing to the city of Samaria. A couple of thoughts about Philip's obedience, and then we'll move on. Again, I said that uh, there were three men we would look at this morning, and only one of them was kind of a textbook example of obedience, and that one today would be Philip. Philip is somebody who, he, he leaves his city because of persecution, but then he, he goes to preach the gospel, and, and two thoughts on his obedience. One is, he's been through a crazy year, but he doesn't use that as an excuse to stop preaching the gospel. Have you ever heard somebody talk that way? Yeah, we, we were at this other church, and it really wasn't that great, didn't really work out, so I'm just going to take some time for myself, and then, then I'll get back into things. Or, you know, hey, I've actually had some things going on, been really busy, and so I'm not really going to search my heart and ask the Lord what he requires of me in this season of life. I'm just going to work on myself, as if that's ever worked out before. Philip didn't use the circumstances as an excuse to stop preaching the gospel. He left, and he went, and God used his obedience. The other thing that we see about Philip, and we have to kind of zoom out a little bit on the book of Acts, but Philip is a really good example through his obedience of someone who understood the truth that assignments are temporary, but the mission's for a lifetime. That assignments are temporary, but the mission is for a lifetime. What is our mission? What does it mean to live sent? It means to make disciples and be witnesses of the resurrection, right? And to do that, we may have to fulfill several different assignments throughout our life. Think about just church this morning. How many different assignments had to be done for us to fulfill our mission as a church? Whether that be setting up tents or setting up coffee or, or kids or production or Jeremy Bird on bass. I mean, all these different things that had to happen for us to be a church and to worship this morning to fulfill our mission. A lot of different assignments had to happen. Think about it individually, though. That's kind of corporately. I believe that God uses us in different assignments in different seasons of our lives, right? For Philip, we see in a season of his life, God used him distributing food to widows. Then God used him in revival in Samaria. And then later we see Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and Philip shows hospitality to Paul. Paul just needed a place to spend the night and Philip shows hospitality to him. We're also told in that passage that Philip had four godly daughters. Peter, not three. Four godly daughters. <laughs> different seasons of life, different assignments. Think about how many different seasons of life are just represented in this room. Got some college kids, some single people maybe, right? Working on education. Maybe young, married, no kids. Maybe some of you are getting the kids. Maybe some of you, the kids are getting more independence and they're starting to get a house so you have some more free time. God is going to call me and he's going to call you to do different assignments in different seasons of life. But y'all, the mission is the same. No matter where we are, maybe just geographic location, maybe God's giving you maybe a, a little bit of something else to do, maybe pulling you out of your comfort zone. Y'all, it doesn't really matter. And we should never turn our nose up to an assignment if it's for his mission. I should never say, oh, that's beneath me. Think about Jesus Christ. How many different assignments did he do of the Father fulfilling one mission to come bring redemption for us? Whether that be healing people, teaching vast crowds, or washing the disciples' feet. Doesn't matter what assignment we do if it's for the mission of God. 
Simon, or excuse me, Philip was obedient, and God used his obedience in a mighty way in Samaria. Now we're going to turn our attention to probably somebody I want to talk about a little bit longer than the other two, and that was Simon. And we're going to see this morning that God used Simon's ignorance. God used Saul's disobedience. God used Philip's obedience. And then God uses Simon's ignorance. Will you read with me verses 9 through 24, a longer passage? It says, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from the smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness, and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Imagine Acts 8 like a Google map. We're told at the very beginning that God used Saul's disobedience to spread the believers across Judea and Samaria, which is like a whole country. Okay, and then we zoom in with Philip to the city of Samaria. And then with Simon, we zoom into one man in one city whose fruit of Philip's ministry. We're given four, three or four verses about Saul, three or four verses about Philip, and 16 verses about Simon. Why does Luke devote so much time to talking about Simon? Simon, And I believe that God gives us discourses and passages like this in Scripture for our instruction. And even in this morning, I believe that God's going to use Simon's ignorance for our benefit. Paul, writing in Romans 15, verse 4, said that these things have been written for our instruction. Now, he was talking about the Old Testament when he wrote that, but he was writing the New Testament when he wrote that, and I believe we can own that same promise even for Acts today, that these examples of a display of ignorance are written for our instruction. And we see many discourses like this throughout Scripture. Most of them are people coming to Jesus and displaying their ignorance. Nicodemus, the woman at the well to a certain extent, Various Pharisees throughout Jesus' ministry, and probably the classic example will be the rich young ruler. And we see this discourse of somebody coming to Jesus or an apostle and displaying their ignorance, and then we get a teaching about what the kingdom of God is like, and I believe we can use that this morning. And so we're going to look at what were Simon's mistakes. What did he not understand about the gospel, and what do we need to understand today? Because, y'all, I believe many of us are closer to Simon's ignorance than we want to admit, and I'll put myself in that category. That's all too easy to have a wrong idea about the kingdom of God, or specifically the power of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see this morning. Let's just catch ourselves up. What about Simon? Simon is a man in Samaria, and he was probably a celebrity in the city. 
We're told that he was a magician. And it's not like he could fool a few kids and the adults were saying, oh, that's fake. I know how he did that. No, it says from the smallest to the greatest, they were giving attention to him and they were calling him the great power of God. So think about it. This guy is in the city. He's a magician and he's used to being called the power of God. Now then Philip shows up and the Holy Spirit is using Philip in a mighty way in Samaria. And I think Simon's jaw hit the floor. Simon was a con man. He had been making a living faking people with magic. And then he encounters the real power of God working through Philip. And he's amazed. We're told in verse 13 that he believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, I've gone back and forth on this a lot, y'all. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. And we, will, we won't know this out of heaven. But I do believe that Simon was a true believer. Now, when you read commentaries, it's pretty much split down the middle. Was he a believer? Was he not? And here, I'll just give you my reason why I believe he was, and we'll move on from it. It's not a big issue. But in verse 12, it says that the city believed. It says, but when they believed, Philip preaching the good news, the Samaritans believed. And then we're told also that in verse 13, then Simon himself believed. That word in the Greek is the same word. And so I believe that we're getting some parallelism here. If the city of Samaria believed, Simon also believed. And if you believe that the Holy Spirit is not trying to intentionally mislead us with his scripture, I think that's a pretty safe bet to say that this is the same belief that came from the city. We're told that he believed, he was baptized, and he continued on with Philip. I would argue this morning that he was justified before the Father, but this joker had a long way to go in his sanctification, as we all do, as we all do. But he still wasn't too far from God, even though he was ignorant. He encounters the power of God. So we're told that when Philip was working and revival was breaking out in Samaria, Peter and John heard, hey, there's revival in Samaria, and they went to the city to see what was going on. And God used Peter and John to bring the Holy Spirit to the city. Now, I know that's kind of another problematic thing. Um, we believe that this is a descriptive passage of Acts, that uh, Luke is telling us what happened in one instance, and this is not what we use for church practice. And we follow the, the prescriptive passages of Paul in that regard. You may say, what is descriptive? That means just because it happened in the Bible one time doesn't mean we have to do it every Sunday or every day of our lives. That would be like saying in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, every time you heard somebody blaspheme God, you got a rock and a sling and you put it through their head, right? That's a descriptive passage. You don't kill anybody who blasphemes God. Please don't do that. We believe this is a descriptive passage, but God uses Peter and John. And remember, Peter and John are not using God. They're being used by God. But what did Simon want? And this is his first mistake. He sees Peter and John giving out the Holy Spirit, laying hands on people, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And he wants to give the apostles money so that he could have the same power. I think what's interesting in verse 19, Simon does not ask for the Holy Spirit. He asks for the power to give out the Holy Spirit. I think we're seeing somebody who had spent a whole life exalting himself and building a name for himself and amassing power for himself. And when he sees Peter and John, he just has to ask, can I give you money so that I can have that power? Many people say that Simon really wasn't safe because of how he obeyed in this passage. Um, so when I was studying for this this week, I just sat down on my living room floor and I was like, Lord, I know you know all things and I know I don't need to know everything but is Simon in the kingdom of heaven this morning? I just want to know. And I wish I could tell you I was given a for sure answer, no, but I just felt like God saying, Liam, didn't I save you? And haven't you done stupid stuff too? No one's too far from God. 
But we see him offer money for the, for the power of the Holy Spirit so that he might give out the Holy Spirit. Peter and John are very harsh. They say, you need to repent of that mindset. You need to repent of that heart. First mistake that we see Simon make, I'm just gonna give you two quickly and then we'll be done. The first one is that he wanted to use the power of God and not be used by the power of God. He wanted to use the power of God for his gain instead of being used by the power of God. We preached on Pentecost, Acts 2, and we said that the Holy Spirit is not a power to wield. He is a person to worship. And y'all, maybe for many of us, so we, we come to the gospel ignorantly or we come to the gospel not knowing and we think we want to come to church or be a part of a church or you know, whatever it might be so that we might gain something for ourselves. I want to be a better father, therefore I'm going to start reading my Bible. I want to be a better husband, therefore I'm going to start taking my kids to church, my wife to church. I had a guy come up to me not too long ago and he said, Liam, I read the Bible a lot, but I read it so that I can argue with my friends who believe differently than me and so I can gain more knowledge. And it's funny, it's not really changing me. I said, no kidding. The truth of God's word is not a tool to use until it's changed you. It's not a tool. We, are we called to use the word of God to live sent, to preach the gospel? Absolutely, but not before it changes us. And y'all, the, the life and forgiveness, grace is when we place ourselves under the authority and lordship of Christ. But our sinful nature is always gonna wanna be on top. But y'all, forgiveness in Christ, sanctification is us placing ourselves under. And that's what Simon had backwards. He wanted to use the power of God instead of be used by the power of God. Peter and John say, you know, you need to get that out of your mind. They're very, very harsh. They say that he's in the gall of bitterness. He needs to pray to the Lord. They say his heart's right, not right before God. And that's their advice. They say, you need to pray and you need to ask for forgiveness because uh, your heart's in the wrong place. And Simon's second mistake that I want to talk about quickly is in how he responds. He seems repentant. He seems sorry for what he did. But in verse 24, what does he ask of Peter and John? He says, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And here's his second mistake. He didn't know how to pray. Another way to say that is he was relying on Peter and John for a relationship with God. Y'all, this is so, so dangerous. And I think in the American church today, we struggle with this. Simon was following charismatic Christian leadership, and he was struggling to follow in Christ himself. Think about it. He was a magician. He liked tricks. He liked to, to look a little flashy. Philip comes in, Peter and John come in, and they're doing amazing things, and he was following them. He believed in the power of God. But I think he was having to understand that our faith is not just about following a pastor or following somebody who's eloquent. It's about following the person of Christ. <laughs> I think we struggle with this sometimes in our, in our churches as well. And, and a really good diagnostic to ask yourself, do I struggle with following charismatic Christian leadership instead of following Christ, is when do you get the, the large port of your diet of the word? When are you in the word? And the, if the answer to that question is the only time you're in the word is when a pastor is force feeding you the word, you very well may be following charismatic Christian leadership and not following God. The type of person that comes on Sunday and wants to be entertained with music and wants to hear an emotional message from the pastor is following leadership and they're not following 
Christ. You say, well, Liam, I'm not supposed to go to church. No, that's not what I'm saying. But y'all, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my ministry, and I've seen it several times, is when someone starts reading this book for themselves. Because they recognize and they start to understand that when Jesus was on the cross, the temple veil was torn into two, and he is our high priest. Dustin is not our high priest. We do not depend on him for the bulk of our spiritual diet. It's not what it's about. The church is here to connect us to a growing relationship with Jesus, not connect us to a growing relationship with Dustin Phillips or Liam Hardy. We want to nurture, we want to support that, we want to water that, but y'all, God is going to cause that growth. Dustin, can I keep going? Sweet, thanks. He's like, what? No, I'm just kidding. I've seen it in my ministry, y'all, when people get into the word for themselves. And Liam Hardy, as a 13-year-old kid, my world was rocked because I had grown up in church. I had heard from pastors and heard from Sunday school teachers. But y'all, I read the book of Romans for myself. And it wasn't me, my Sunday school teacher, and God. It wasn't me, my parents, and God. It was me and God. And I'm telling you, if you read it fresh off the page, Romans 8, 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, but you have received a, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It just hits differently because it's you and the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ this morning, y'all, because I've searched the scriptures and I believe in it myself. And I believe that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father this morning. Why? Because I've spoken to him this morning. Church, we want that relationship with God for you. We want that for you. Not following charismatic Christian leadership, but following Jesus, communing with him daily. Do you know the Father? Do you walk with him daily? Oh, I pray that you do. Simon's example here, we can learn from his ignorance by saying, do I have a relationship with God? Because God wants to hear from you. Has he lately? We talk a lot about our next steps, and we have a lot of next steps for our church, whether you want to sign up for serving or get into a connect group, so many different things. Y'all, I believe for some of us, our next step is to go home, get in a room by ourselves, turn off the cell phone, get on our knees before the Father, and say, Lord, I haven't been with you one-on-one in so long. But if we do that, we're learning a lot from Simon's ignorance. Quickly this morning, and I'll close. I want us just to back up just a minute, and I want us to look at all three men as a whole, and I want us to make a couple of observations and ask, can we have the mind of God and the eyes of God in viewing people like this in our lives? Let's just take these three men as types of people. We all have Saul's in our lives. Somebody who is not a believer, someone who's diametrically opposed to the things of God. If you bring up church to that person, they're just going to make fun of you. They're going to say religion's a crutch, right? Things like that. Then think about Phillips. We've got people that we know that are just on fire for the Lord, that are being obedient, living out life sent. We probably also have people like Simons in our lives. They're, you could tell they're just a searching heart, right? Maybe they're coming to church. Maybe they're not quite coming to church yet, but they're just asking some questions and they're probably saying some things that you're like, that's not right, that's not biblical. But, but you can tell they're just not there yet, but they're still searching. I believe that we're supposed to have the eyes of God for all three types of those people in our lives in order to live sent and to recognize that no one is too far from God. So quickly, I just three points of application. First one for the Saul's in your life, for those who are just opposed to the things of God, believe Acts 9 for the Saul's in your life. Acts 9 is when God shows up for Saul. He radically changes his life. He says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life does a 180. And y'all, for so many of us, it's easy for us to look at the Bible and say, oh yeah, God did that. 
for Saul. That, that was good, but he's not going to do that for my coworker. And so I'm just not going to bring up the gospel. I'm just not going to say anything. I know I, we've been through this, Liam. We've done the dance time and time again. Y'all, stop looking at the potential in them and seeing none and look at Jesus and see the potential in what he's done on the cross for that person. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. That's what God does. We got to believe Acts 9 for the souls. Y'all, maybe there's somebody you've been praying for for a dozen years. Don't stop praying. Don't stop witnessing. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop inviting. We got to believe Acts 9 for the souls in our lives. Does that mean that God's going to save every soul in our life? Absolutely not. But it doesn't change our responsibility as believers to live sin. Secondly, y'all, we got to be patient with the Simons. We gotta be patient with the Simons in our lives. Somebody who's searching, maybe somebody says the wrong thing, they rub you the wrong way sometimes. You're just like, man, I feel like I, I'm... it gets frustrating. But y'all, not only was I a Saul at one point in my life, but I was also a Simon. I think we need to, having the eyes of God, well, I guess this isn't the eyes of God, but having the eyes of a humble follower of Christ is to see yourself in other people's sin. Say, man, I was there. And never getting too far removed that. Y'all, we gotta be patient with the Simons in our lives. The last one is Philip. I know I did Saul and Simon and Philip, and I may spend a little more time on Philip. With Philip, it's not about seeing the potential in the gospel for Philip. It's about knocking him down a couple of steps and saying that Philip is in the kingdom of God because of grace too. Sometimes we look at Saul and say, he needed grace. Simon needed grace, but Philip got in on his works. And that's not the gospel, and that's not the way it works. We're not record, it's not recorded in Scripture. We're, we're given some of Saul's bad moments. We're given some of Simon's bad moments. But we're not given any of Philip's. But y'all, he was a sinner too. And he had fallen short of the standard of God's glory. Maybe you see yourself as a Philip. I don't know. But y'all, Philip is not in heaven today because God used him in many different seasons of his life for many different assignments. It's not why he's in the kingdom of God today. He's even in the kingdom of God because of the sacrifice of Christ on his life. No one is too far from God, but no one can get close to him on their own. We need Christ. But the cool thing about no one being too far from God is that Jesus is always within reach. And that started with John 1.14, when heaven came and touched humanity. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw the glory of God as begotten from the Father. No one's too far from God because Jesus came. And there's grace for the Saul's, for the Simons, and even for the Phillips. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for the truth this morning that no one is too far from you. Lord, that you can redeem any situation, God. You can cause any evil to work out for good and for your glory, God. Lord, I pray as we look at the examples of Saul and Philip and Simon this morning, God, we would just see ourselves, God, we would see our communities, Lord, and we would commit to having the mind of God that recognizes, Lord, that we just live sin and we let the growth, we just leave that to you, Father, and we'll just walk in obedience. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that you would give us that boldness, Lord, to preach the gospel in every situation humbly for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.